Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 249 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the World War II Nazi Hess conspiracies. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. They say that the first casualty in war, wartime is the truth. That's because both sides in a war lie to keep secrets and to save face for their nations. That means wars generate mysteries, and sometimes these mysteries can remain long after the war is over. Whenever there's a mystery involving multiple people, charges of conspiracy inevitably arise, and World War II was no exception to these principles. It generated lies, secrets, mysteries, and conspiracy theories. And today we'll be talking about some of them. Who was keeping secrets? Who was telling lies? What mysteries resulted in? What do we know about the reported conspiracies today? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Hey folks, it's Jimmy and Dom here from the future, and we have a special announcement we wanted to share with you. Jimmy, take it away. So uh, Mysterious World has been going on for nigh on to five years now, and we have our fifth anniversary coming up this August. And so I was thinking about what could we do to commemorate the fifth anniversary of Mysterious World. And one of the things that happens uh, every so often is people will send me accounts of mysterious experiences that have happened to them. And, um, you know, I'll try to provide a little bit of perspective on it or give them my thoughts. And it occurred to me that could make a really interesting episode. We have a big enough audience that we should have enough um interesting stories from people to fill an hour. So if you've had a mysterious experience, uh, please think about sending it to us. It could be um, an experience of a of an apparently supernatural nature, you know, a miracle that happened or an apparition of God or one of the saints or an encounter with angels or demons. It could be a paranormal experience like a psychic experience, you know, premonitions or um, uh, appearances of ghosts or haunting or poltergeist experience. It could be cryptids like uh, Bigfoot or some other kind of cryptid. It could be UFOs or aliens. It could be shadow people. It could be a near-death experience that you or someone in your family had, an NDE, or an end-of-life experience, like a crisis apparition or something like that. If you've had a mysterious experience, uh, please write it up and uh, send it to me. You can send it to mysterious at sqpn.com. Once again, that's mysterious at sqpn.com. You can also record it in your own voice and send it in. Um, and even if you've already sent it in in the past, if you send it now, that will tell me you're interested in potentially having it in our fifth anniversary celebration. And I don't know that depending on how many we get, I don't know if we'll be able to use all the ones we get, but. I'd really appreciate hearing from the audience, and I think the audience would appreciate hearing what their fellow listeners have had happen to them that was mysterious. So thank you. 
Excellent. Yeah, that'll make a great show, folks. So we look forward to receiving all of your feedback and your stories. And like Jimmy said, you can send it to any of the usual feedback locations, addresses that we have, and we'll uh, use that in the show. Thank you. And now back to the show. Before we get started, let's clarify a point of terminology. Today, we're going to be hearing the word Britain a lot. And although Americans are familiar with that word, they sometimes identify Britain and England with each other. But that's not true, is it? No, Britain includes more than just England. Uh, the word Britain is a common abbreviation for the phrase Great Britain, and Great Britain is the island that contains England. But there's more on the island than of Great Britain than just England. Uh, for example, there's Scotland up north and Wales in the west. So when you hear the word Britain, think everybody on the island, not just the English. We should also note that today's episode will be part one of a two-parter. Yeah, and uh, we'll tell you the basic story of the mystery and look at allegations of conspiracy that are connected with it. Uh, we'll get to a certain point in our discussion, and then next week we'll look at some of the most explosive charges that have been made. So you definitely wanna, don't want to miss World War II explosive charges. <laughs> so when does today's mystery begin? It starts on Saturday, uh, May 10th, 1941. At this time, World War II was in its second year in Europe. And after, you know, after Germany had invaded Poland, which was 19 months earlier, um, Britain and France had declared war on Germany. France had fallen and been forced to sign an armistice with the Nazi government. And in Britain, a new and resolute prime minister, Winston Churchill, was overseeing their war effort. And what happened on May 10th, 1941? Just before 6 p.m. in the evening of German time, a lone aircraft took off from an airfield near Augsburg in southern Germany. The plane was a specially fitted Messerschmitt uh, BF 110E heavy fighter plane, and it was on a secret mission. In his book, The Hitler Conspiracies, historian Richard Evans writes, after crossing the German border, it reached the Dutch Frisian Islands at 7.35 and then altered course, flying in an easterly direction, clearly in order to avoid being detected by British radar. After some 23 minutes, it changed course back to a northwesterly direction and began to make its way up the North Sea. Maintaining a low altitude, it passed over two German U-boats, which began to dive but then halted the maneuver when their spotters recognized the plane as friendly. The plane climbed to 5,000 meters and continued. At two minutes to nine, it made a 90-degree turn to the left and flew directly towards Scotland. But the daylight was still too strong for it to avoid being seen by enemy spotters. So after a while, it reversed course and flew back and forth until it was dark enough to continue safely. At 23 minutes past 10, it reached the British coast near Bamberg in Northumberland and descending rapidly, flew low enough over the countryside for the pilot to see people in the fields and wave to them as he passed overhead. Oh, that bit about the pilot waving at the people down in the fields as he passed over them. But he was about to encounter some problems. After some minor course adjustments, the plane reached the west coast south of Glasgow at 5 to 11, the pilot enjoying what he shortly afterwards described as a fairy tale view of steep mountainous islands visible in the moonlight and fading twilight. He turned inland 
climbed again, and unable to locate his intended landing place, a small disused private airfield at Dungaville House, the residence of the Duke of Hamilton, decided to parachute out of the aircraft. He turned the engines off, feathered the propellers, opened the cockpit roof, unfastened the side windows, and, turning the aircraft over, jumped out, pulled on the ripcord of his parachute, and fell to earth, hitting the ground hard and losing consciousness, while the Messerschmitt crashed and burst into flames a short way off. It was nine minutes past eleven. As the pilot later described it in a letter to his son, I woke up in a German-looking meadow, not realizing where I was and what was happening to me. When I first saw my parachute lying behind me, it became clear to me that I had arrived in Scotland, the first landing place of my plan. People came running towards me, alarmed by the burning aircraft. They looked at me in a compassionate way. The pilot landed about 30 feet in front of the front door of a local farmer named David McLean, and the noise of the plane crash caused him to come running out of his house. He found the pilot still tethered to his parachute and helped him to his feet. Noticing that the man was wearing a uniform, Mr. McLean asked him if he was German. The pilot, speaking in good English, replied, Yes, I am Captain Alfred Horn. I have an important message for the Duke of Hamilton. The Duke of Hamilton was a British lord in the peerage of Scotland, and Dungavel House belonged to him. Uh, Captain Horn had been trying to land at a private airfield at Dungavel House, but he hadn't been able to find it in the darkness, leading to his decision to ditch the plane and parachute to the ground. Captain Horn had hurt his back and right ankle in the landing, so Mr. McLean took him into his cottage while another man went for the police. Before the police arrived, however, some men from the wartime Home Guard arrived, having seen Captain Horn parachuting to the ground. Uh, they took him to their Home Guard base, where he was searched, and he was then taken to Maryhill Barracks in Glasgow. Richard Evans picks up the story. Meanwhile, the local Royal Air Force commander, alerted by the police, telephoned the Duke of Hamilton. A German captain has parachuted from a Messerschmitt 110 and wants to see you, he said. Good heavens, what does he want to see me about? Hamilton replied. I don't know, he won't say. I think you should go and see him. At 10 o'clock the next morning, the Duke arrived at the barracks and was shown to a room where he could meet privately with Captain Horn. Once they were alone, Captain Horn explained that his real name was not, in fact, Captain Alfred Horn. Instead, his real name was Rudolf Hess. He was the deputy Führer of the Nazi party just below Adolf Hitler, and he had come to Scotland on an urgent peace mission. It's quite a surprising revelation, and we should go back in time to get some background on Rudolf Hess. Who was he, and what was his relationship with Hitler? Rudolf Hess was born to wealthy German parents in 1894 in Alexandria, Egypt, or Skandar, as the locals refer to it. At the time, Egypt was formerly part of the Ottoman Empire, but it was being occupied by the British, so Hess grew up in an area which was under British control, and he came to admire the British Empire. And he wasn't alone in that among the Nazis, Adolf Hitler himself had some admiration for the British. As Northern Europeans, the English have common ethnic and cultural connections with Germans, 
in fact, English is a Germanic language. Uh, Hitler had primarily fought against the British soldiers during World War One, and that led him to come come to respect them. He he also admired the British Empire. In 1936, before World War II, he remarked that he would prefer to have England as an ally rather than Italy. So Hess was not alone in having positive sentiments towards the British. Where was Hess educated? Was it in Egypt? Between 1900 and 1908, uh, he went to a German-speaking Protestant school in Alexandria, but then when he was 14, he was sent to a boarding school in Germany. World War I broke out in 1914 when Hess was 20 years old, and he quickly enlisted in the German army. Serving in a field artillery regiment and later in the infantry, he was present at the First Battle of Ypres uh, on the Western Front in Belgium, and he later fought at the Battle of Verdun in France. Uh, He was wounded several times in battle, uh, was awarded the Iron Cross Second Class, and was eventually promoted to lieutenant, a reserve officer. Hess also asked to become a fighter pilot, uh, World War I being the first major war that had those newfangled airplane things flying around in combat, although technically they had been used earlier in the 1911 Italo-Turkish War. Uh, Hess received flight training and qualified as a fighter pilot, but he didn't see any action in the sky because World War I came to an end in 1918. What did he do after the war? One of the things he did was join the Tula Society, and this was a really strange group. It was founded in 1918, the same year that the war ended, and it was named after Thule, which in Greek mythology was a land and a people located in the far north. It's sometimes identified with Iceland and sometimes with Scandinavia. But for members of the Tula Society, it was a lost island or landmass up near Iceland or Greenland, kind of like Atlantis, but not Atlantis. The Tula Society focused on the origin of the so-called Aryan race, a theme that would later become prominent in Nazism. It had a racist ideology, and if you wanted to join, you had to swear that you and your wife had no Jewish or colored ancestors, so Gentile whites only. It had occult beliefs, so Hess was exposed to occultism, and it had political beliefs and could serve as a kind of paramilitary organization. At first, Germany was very chaotic in the post-World War I period, and different right-wing and communist left-wing factions were struggling for control. Rudolf Hess himself brawled in the street, uh, in street battles between different groups uh, as part of the Thule Society. In 1919, Hess enrolled in the University of Munich to study history and economics, and there, one of his professors was a man named Karl Haushofer, who was an advocate of the concept of Lebensraum. That's a term that later come up among the Nazis. What does Lebensraum refer to? Well, since English is a Germanic language, you can almost hear what it means. Leben is German for life, and you can hear how Leben sounds like living, while Raum means, sounds like room, and so Lebensraum was living room or living space. The idea was that Germanic peoples needed more room to live in order to thrive and survive, 
And so they ought to displace people in central and eastern parts of Europe to get that room. Uh, the non-Germanic natives of those countries, like Poles, Czechs, Ukrainians, Russians, and other Slavic peoples, needed to be deported, uh, for example, by pushing them further east, maybe into Siberia. Either that or they needed to be killed. Uh, and then uh, Germans would move into their land as settlers and set up colonies. And yes, the Nazis did uh, later make a big deal about Lebensraum. Uh, they advocated an extreme form of it, and they used it as a justification for their eastward expansion during World War II. But Hess uh, picked up this idea earlier from his professor, Karl Haushofer, uh, when he was in college. Hess also became friends with the professor's son, Albrecht Haushofer, and he will come back into our story, so remember him. In 1920, Two years after the war ended, when he was 26, Hess met his future wife, Ilse Prohl. Uh, they got married in 1927, and in 1937, uh, just a couple of years before the next war started, they had their only child, a son named Wolf, or Wolf in English, although his nickname was Buzz, and he was known by this name throughout life. Buzz was only three and a half years old when his father made his famous flight. He later became an architect, and he passed on in 2001 at the age of 63. And he will also be coming back into our story, so remember him too. How did Rudolf Hess meet Adolf Hitler? That happened in 1920, when Hitler gave a speech in Munich where Hess was studying. Hitler was a mesmerizing speaker, and he mesmerized Hess, who shared many of his views. One of them was a belief in the stab-in-the-back theory, which held that Germany had not lost World War I fair and square. Instead, the stab-in-the-back theory was a conspiracy theory that held that Germany actually lost the war when it was stabbed in the back by a conspiracy of Jewish people and Marxists. So Hitler was preaching the kind of message that Hess approved of. Hess also joined the Nazi party, and he was member number 16, so he was an early adopter of Nazism. In fact, he joined before even Hitler did. Not a lot of people realize this, but Hitler did not found the Nazi party. It already existed, and although Hitler claimed to be the seventh member to join, he was actually the 55th. So with Hess as the 16th member and Hitler as the 55th, Hess actually had been a Nazi for longer than the future Fuhrer. What did Hess do after he became a Nazi? He became very active in party politics, including fundraising and organizing, and he joined the Sturmabteilung, uh, a term which means storm detachment. And this was the Nazi party's paramilitary wing at the time. They're better known as the SA, or the brown shirts, because of the color of their uniform. Since the Sturmabteilung uh, meant storm detachment, it is often translated into English as stormtroopers. So if you've ever wondered where the, Nazi, where the Star Wars stormtroopers got their name, it's from the brown shirts, the Nazi stormtroopers that Rudolf Hess was part of. And basically, they were a group of early Nazi thugs. Uh, though they later lost ground to the even more famous group of Nazi thugs known as the SS. Um, 
Hess also built a close friendship with Hitler. In 1921, a Marxist group tried to assassinate Hitler with a bomb, and Hess protected him and was injured in doing so. Things continued to be very chaotic in Germany, and the nation was now going through the Weimar hyperinflation, which we talked about in episode 199 on the inflation that the government causes, in this case, the Weimar government. So Hess was sticking with Hitler during really tough times. In 1923, Hitler decided that the time was right to try to take over the government. And so in a beer hall in Munich, uh, he announced a revolution. The event is now known as the Beer Hall Putscht, uh, Putscht being a German word that means riot or rebellion. How successful was that Beer Hall Putsch? <laughs> Not very. It uh, only lasted a couple of days. Uh, there was some violence, but Hitler and his associates were quickly taken into custody. And the Nazi Party and the SA were banned, although that ban was later rescinded. Hitler and Hess were both sentenced to prison, and it was during this time in prison that Hitler started writing his famous book, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. Uh, Hess was one of the two men that took Hitler's dictation for Mein Kampf. Hitler and Hess were then released from prison in late 1924, and the next year Hitler appointed Hess his personal secretary and later his adjutant or administrative assistant. The two were regularly together. And Hess was one of the few people allowed to see Hitler without an appointment. Uh, after the Nazis really did get control of the German government in 1933, uh, with the disintegration of the Weimar Republic, uh, and with Hitler as the new Führer or leader, he appointed Hess as his deputy Führer, meaning deputy leader. Uh, his job was to be was to lead the government party as Hitler's representative. And so in this period, his star was rising. Based on the evidence we have, what was Hess like as a person? He uh, apparently was devoted to not Nazi ideology uh, sincerely rather than just for personal advantage. Uh, he wasn't just an opportunist who was sucking up to Hitler to better his position in life. He Hess lived modestly and did not have a big home. He did not cultivate a group of lackeys or followers to support him. He didn't use his position to become wealthy. He apparently just wanted to be useful to Hitler as his Fuhrer, which, of course, meant that he was a viciously racist, uh, anti-Semitic person. Uh, he didn't like non-Germanic peoples, including Slavs, Egyptians, and black people. And he saw Jewish conspiracies all over the place and helped foster the Nazi persecution of Jews in Germany and German-occupied territories, instituting, uh, signing anti-Jewish laws, although he did issue documents that helped blunt the effect of the anti-Jewish laws on the family of his professor, Karl Haushofer. Uh, professor Haushofer had married a half-Jewish woman, and so the laws otherwise would have applied to his family, including his son and Hess's friend, Albrecht Haushofer, who was a quarter Jewish. So Hess was a strong anti-Semite, but not an utterly merciless one. He had mercy on the Haushofers. And he had some interesting personal quirks, too. Yeah, among those was the fact that Hess, like Hitler, was a vegetarian and didn't drink or smoke. 
What were some of his others? Yeah, what's up with that not eating meat and not smoking business? Well, don't, he don't trust anyone like that. Yeah, um, he also ate a special biodynamic diet. Uh, biodynamic agriculture is an organic food movement that uses principles from the Austrian occultist Rudolf Steiner, and it's pretty unusual, like using astrology to determine your agricultural calendar, which actually wouldn't have been that unusual in the past. But they also do things like grind up quartz crystals, put them in a cow horn and bury them in the soil to harness the soil's cosmic forces and help your plants grow better. Uh, Hess was so devoted to his biodynamic diet that he'd even bring his own food to Hitler's vacation home. But Hitler didn't approve of the biodynamic stuff. And rather than eat the food that Hitler was having prepared for his guests, Hess simply started taking his meals away from Hitler. So that's how devoted to his biodynamic diet he was. Did the diet help with Hess's health? It's hard to say because. Hess was also a hypochondriac. Uh, He thought he had all kinds of health ailments. In fact, on his flight to Scotland, he brought 28 different medications with him, plus homeopathic remedies. So, wow, concerned for your health much? And his hypochondria can make it harder to judge what his actual state of health was. Uh, But he still preferred his mystically inspired biodynamic diet, And that wasn't the only paranormal subject he was interested in. Perhaps as a result of his time in the Tula Society, he also was interested in astrology, clairvoyance, and the occult, all subjects that Hitler scoffed at. Uh, For more on Hitler's views on occult matters, you can go back and listen to episode 31 on Hitler's religion. But Hess's paranormal beliefs will be important to the story later on, so remember them. If Hitler disapproved of the things Hess was into, why did he have him on his as his right-hand man? Well, Hitler had a certain amount of patience with the people around him. A lot of his aides were kind of uh, weird, but Hitler needed them. And after all, Hitler couldn't expect other people to be as perfect as he was. So he tolerated Hess's eccentricities, but only up to a point. In fact, Around the time World War II started in 1939, Hess's star was beginning to dim. Uh, just after the invasion of Poland on September 1st, Hitler made Hess second in line to succeed him, after Hermann Göring. So Göring now outranked Hess in this sense. Also, about the same time, Hitler appointed Martin Bormann as his personal secretary personal secretary being a post has formerly held. So like, you know, people like Goering and Bormann had outmaneuvered Hess and displaced him. But even though Hess's star was dimming, Hitler still needed him. Once the war began, uh, Hess asked to be allowed to join the Luftwaffe or the German Air Force so that he could be a fighter pilot like he wanted to be in World War I. But Hitler said no. He also told Hess not to do any more flying, even as a private pilot, for the duration of the war. Um, Hess eventually got him to cut that ban back to just a year, but it was an illustration of how Hitler didn't want Hess undertaking any dangerous activities. So he still valued him, 
though Hess was increasingly sidelined as he wasn't directly involved in the war effort. And then, on May 10, 1941, Hess made his dramatic flight to Scotland. That brings us back to where we started. When Hess got to Scotland, he spoke with the Duke of Hamilton and said he was on an urgent peace mission. What did he want to accomplish? That's a matter of dispute, so we'll be talking about it as one of the theories that we'll discuss in the reason section. Suffice it to say, the British didn't cotton to whatever kind of peace plan he had on offer, and they simply decided to keep him in custody, so Rudolf Hess never walked the earth again as a free man. After the war, he was put on trial at Nuremberg, Germany, along with other Nazi war criminals. Uh, Many of them were put to death by hanging, but Hess was one of seven sentenced to life imprisonment. He was then confined to Spandau Prison in West Berlin. Um, In German, the name is pronounced Spandau. In English, it's pronounced Spandau, and you may hear me say it both ways. In any event, the prison was designed to hold 600 prisoners, but there were only seven inmates. Three of Hess's fellow prisoners were released in the 1950s on humanitarian grounds because of their poor health, and the other three were released in the 1950s and 60s when their sentences were up. That left Hess as the only prisoner at Spandau from 1966 to his death for more than 20 years. So a whole prison designed for 600 people hosting just one guy. But Hess did remain in prison. Uh, There were periodic efforts to free him, but these didn't come to anything. One reason being that the Soviets, who were one of the four allied powers controlling the prison, regularly blocked his release every time the subject came up. Uh, Originally, conditions at the prison were quite strict, but they loosened with time. Although family members were allowed to make brief visits every month, Hess forbade family members from visiting him until 1969. But after that first visit, he allowed them to come back regularly, and he got to see photos and home movies of his grandchildren. Conditions became even more relaxed once Hess was the only prisoner at Spandau, and he basically had the run of the place, though he was guarded. Did Hess ever renounce his Nazi views or his actions prior to his capture? No, uh, he never expressed regret for his actions. He continued to be an unapologetic Nazi and an anti-Semite. He spent the rest of his life in Spandau prison, and it was a long life because he lived until 1987 when he passed on to his reward at the age of 93. Uh, I remember it being in the news when it happened. Uh, On August 17, 1987, he was found hung by a lamp cord from a window latch, and he died shortly afterwards. The four powers investigated, and a month later, they ruled uh, it to be death by suicide. Spandau Prison was then demolished to keep it from becoming a neo-Nazi shrine. Uh, Hess was originally buried in a secret location, but later his remains were moved to a family plot, which then did become a neo-Nazi shrine. So his family had the remains disinterred, cremated, and his ashes were spread at sea by the family. And thus ends the story of Rudolf Hess, except for all the conspiracy theories we need to discuss. So that brings us to our theories segment. What conspiracies are there connected with Rudolf Hess? 
there are several we need to look at. Uh, first, why did he make his ill-fated flight? Uh, did Hitler tell him to go? Did Hess go for his own reasons? Or had the British invited him or managed to trick him into coming? Second, when he got to Britain, what was the message that he came to Scotland to deliver? Uh, we know it was some kind of peace plan, but what were the terms of the deal? Third, who was the man in Spandau prison? Was it really Rudolf Hess or was it an imposter? And fourth, how did, Des how did Hess die? Did he really commit suicide? Or was he deliberately killed? And if so, why? These theories would have involved the collaboration of multiple people in the suppression of key facts about illegal or immoral acts uh, of public interest. And so they are what we may refer to collectively as the Hess Conspiracies, the title of today's episode. In this week, we'll look at the first two issues. Why did Hess fly to Scotland and what kind of peace plan did he propose? And then next week, we'll look at even more explosive issues. Was it really Rudolf Hess at all or an imposter? And whoever it was, did he commit suicide or was he murdered? Before we get to those two that we're going to talk about today, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including John S., Ruth R., Mary S., Renee C., and Elizabeth B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by... Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Jimmy, what can we say about Rudolf Hess from the reason perspective? Why did he make his ill-fated ill flight? Did Hitler tell him to go? Did Hess go for his own reasons? Or did the British trick him into coming? The standard account, which the British government promoted once the story became public, was that Rudolf Hess came entirely on his own initiative. Hitler did not send him, and the British did not in invite him and did not know that he was coming. So that's the official account, but a lot of people have not believed it. Why not? Why would people reject the official account? In part because it's not what you would expect. Uh, Rudolf Hess was an extremely high person in the German government. He was deputy Fuhrer. Uh, and so, you know, people that highly ranked normally don't just fly into your airspace on their own. Uh, people on diplomatic missions are usually acting on the orders of their superiors. They are briefed on what they are and are not allowed to say and propose in negotiations. They don't typically go rogue and start diplomatic missions on their own, and they don't typically make negotiating offers without authorization of their superiors. Their superiors really do not like it when subordinates make unauthorized offers on their behalf. It can 
make the diplomatic situation much, much worse if someone is acting as a rogue, unauthorized diplomat. It can make it can undermine the government's actual diplomatic efforts, and it can make a government look weak and cause problems in a war or alienate the nation's allies, especially in wartime if it looks like you're sending peace feelers to the enemy. Uh, there can be legal prohibitions on this kind of activity for just this reason. Uh, for example, here in the United States, we have what's known as the Logan Act, which makes unauthorized di diplomacy on the part of the United States illegal. The Logan Act dates all the way back to 1788, so, you know, very shortly after the country was founded. So uh, the need for this was recognized very early in our nation's history. Superiors really do not like unauthorized diplomacy. Subordinates know that, and so they generally don't conduct diplomacy without their superior's consent. And you'd especially expect that to be the case, you know, if the, if the superior is a violent, egomaniacal, totalitarian with severe anger management issues like Hitler. Um, he could, you know, have you killed off if you went off the reservation and did things that made other nations think Germany was weaker than it appeared and was desperate to strike a deal with Britain. Not only would that embolden the British in their war effort, it would make Hitler's allies, the Italians and the Japanese, lose confidence in Hitler's commitment to their mutual goals in the war if he was seen trying to negotiate a separate peace with Britain. The expected thing, Thus, would be for Hess to have Hitler's authorization before he even contemplated undertaking a mission like this. Also, isn't it normal for countries to receive visits from foreign diplomats unexpectedly? It is, it is not normal um, it, for something like this to happen. If an unknown, unauthorized foreign airplane from one of your enemies in wartime starts approaching your airspace, then you will, you know, try to shoot it out of the sky. Uh, if a diplomat from a hostile power wants to come over and negotiate, he needs to contact you and arrange safe passage first so you don't, you know, kill him before he arrives. The normal way that these things are done uh, is to have remote, sometimes back-channel discussions about the possibility of a diplomatic envoy. Um, these discussions are frequently carried out uh, privately behind the scenes by lower level officials. And then if there's if they seem to be bearing fruit, a country may allow contact between higher level representatives. But you typically don't start at the top like with the deputy Fuhrer. Uh, so according to the normal way that things would proceed, both on the part of the Germans and the British, you would expect that prior background discussions had been going on, that they seemed to be promising, and so both Hitler and the British leader Winston Churchill had authorized a diplomatic mission on the part of Hess, and Hess then would have flown over with the way prepared for him. You would not expect the deputy Fuhrer to fly to Britain all on his own, unexpected and without permission from either side in a Messerschmitt 110 that was identifiable from its silhouette as a German-manufactured manufactured fighter plane built for combat missions. You wouldn't expect it to come over and conduct unauthorized peace negotiations, 
on behalf of someone like Adolf Hitler. On the face of that, such an occurrence would be completely improbable. Uh, That's what makes this such a bizarre situation that has fascinated people for more than 80 years. And so there are strong initial reasons to suspect that the official account may not be accurate, and thus, many people have doubted the official story and proposed a conspiracy to suppress the truth. A sudden, unauthorized flight by Hess would certainly be unexpected, but unexpected events sometimes happen in history, so we can't judge solely based on that. What evidence do doubters of the official view cite in favor of their alternative? We should look at this question from two perspectives, uh, one on the part of the Germany, on the part of the Germans, and then on the part of the British. On the part of the Germans, Rudolf Hess's son, Wolf, uh, made several arguments in documents that we'll have a link to. First, he says that a few days before the flight, his father and Hitler had a four-hour meeting in which they raised their voices. And if you've ever been in a four-hour meeting, that's probably not unexpected. Um, Afterwards, Hitler was heard uh, telling Hess that he was really stubborn. Second, uh, Hitler and Hess had a close relationship. And so Wolf thinks that his father would not have done this without authorization. Third, although Hitler had Hess's adjutants and secretaries imprisoned after the flight, Hitler showed kindness towards Hess's family. Fourth, after his arrest by the British, Hess wrote two letters, one to Hitler and one to his family, and these letters speak as if he still has a warm relationship with Hitler. And then fifth, uh, one of Hess's friends was convinced that Hitler had advanced knowledge of Hess's flight. What do you think about the strength of these arguments? I don't think they're very strong at all. Uh, Yes, there's a good on-the-face-of-it case that Hitler should have approved the flight, uh, but these particular arguments are not very weighty. To respond to them uh, first, the fact Hitler and Hess had a lengthy meeting after which Hitler said Hess was stubborn tells us nothing. We don't know what the meeting was about. It could have been about anything. Uh, For example, many have thought that Hess's flight had been prompted by Hitler's plan to create a second front by attacking Russia in the upcoming Operation Barbarossa or Operation Redbeard. Uh, It said that Hess thought that fighting a two-front war could have been disastrous for Germany and he was right. And he may have been trying to convince Hitler not to attack Russia. Uh, the conversation may have had nothing to do with the planned flight to Britain. Whatever they were discussing, Hitler clearly took a different view than Hess, as illustrated both by the raising of voices and by Hitler telling Hess he was a stubborn man. That disagreement does not make it sound like Hess had Hitler's approval or a diplomatic mission to Britain. Whatever they were talking about, they were disagreeing on it. Second, Hitler and Hess did not have a particularly close relationship at this point. Uh, Hess may have wanted them to have such a relationship, but Hess's position with Hitler had deteriorated, and he was being marginalized, as illustrated by the fact that other Nazis had outmaneuvered him and were more favored now. Hess may have felt close to Hitler, but it wasn't fully reciprocated, and Hess's flight could have been a desperate, unauthorized attempt to save his friend Hitler from what he saw as a disastrous course of action 
in attacking Russia and maybe get back in his good graces. Third, whatever kindness uh, that Hitler may have uh, later showed to Hess's family, they weren't the ones who would have been directly involved in making preparations for the flight. Uh, Hess's adjutants and secretaries would have been, and Hitler had those people arrested. Uh, Fourth, the fact that Hess later wrote letters to Hitler and his family that made it sound like they had a warm relationship isn't really a value. If you're on the outs with your boss, you may well write a letter making it sound like you're still friendly to him in hopes that he'll be friendly back towards you. And if you don't want to alarm your family, you may well write them a letter making it sound like you and your boss still have friendly relationships to keep your family from freaking out about the fact that you don't and your homicidal totalitarian boss might one day take vengeance on them. Finally, just because a friend of yours uh, thought you had authorization for an action doesn't mean that you did. If your friend doesn't have direct evidence of what happened, he may just be going with what you'd commonly expect or with a rumor you'd heard, he'd heard. And, you know, what you'd commonly expect may not apply in this situation. If you don't find these specific arguments purporting to show that Hitler approved Hess's mission are strong, what are the arguments that the British must have been expecting him? There are several arguments I've seen made. Uh, First, that there were previous lower-level back-channel communications, just as you'd expect in this situation. Uh, Second, that there was a group of highly placed people in Britain who wanted peace with Hitler, some of whom, including members of the royal family, were even sympathetic to Hitler. And third, that Hess's plane was allowed to reach the island nation without interference and that British military forces were ordered not to shoot it down. Uh, There are other arguments, but those are the principal ones. And what do you make of them? Yeah, they're also not strong. Uh, First, it's quite possible that there were uh, low-level back-channel peace negotiations going on with Germany to see if the war situation might be resolved. But you'd need evidence to claim that these were happening. Further, you'd need to show that such discussions involved a future visit by Rudolf Hess as the deputy Fuhrer and that they were planning and approving, that the British were planning and approving uh, such a visit from him. And I haven't found any evidence of Britain planning and approving such a visit. Second, it's likely that there were British people, even highly placed ones, that wanted a negotiated peace. It's also likely that there were some who were sympathetic to Hitler. There were such people here in America, and the same would have been true in Britain. I mean, remember, at this time, Hitler wasn't known to be the total monster that he later turned out to be. He later seemed like a kind of eccentric strongman ruler, but, you know, he hadn't yet sent millions of people to the gas chamber. But even given, you know, some sympathy for Hitler in some quarters, that doesn't mean that they were expecting a flight from the deputy Fuhrer. Again, you need evidence uh, that this was the case. I mean, here in America, there were sympathizers for Hitler and they weren't expecting a flight from Rudolf Hess. So you need stronger evidence uh, to show that that specifically was the case in Britain. Third, uh, Hess's plane was not 
allowed to approach the island of Great Britain without interference. In fact, they did try to shoot it down. In their book, The Flight of Rudolf Hess, Nesbitt and Van Acker write, If Hess's aircraft had been expected, RAF fighters would have been sent up to escort it safely to its destination. It can be established quite clearly from public records that three Spitfires and a Defiant were ordered to attack and not escort the approaching enemy aircraft. On 25 July 1989, one of these Spitfire pilots, Maurice Pocock, was filmed by a television team from BBC Time Watch at the Imperial War Museum in London. Pocock related how he took off to hunt for the intruder and described the problem of picking out the machine in the fading light over the dark hills of Northumberland. The interviewer then asked, what would you have done if you'd caught up with it? Pocock looked at him with incredulity. I'd have shot it down, he snapped. On the same occasion, the team filmed the teller at F Fighter Command Headquarters, Felicity Ashby, who explained that Hess's aircraft was treated as a hostile intruder, being identified as Raid 42. So we have multiple people who were involved in the shootdown effort confirming that this is what happened. Don't some people argue that British anti-aircraft batteries were ordered not to fire on the airplane? Yes, and they were ordered not to fire the anti-aircraft batteries. But there's a very simple reason for that. They'd already dispatched four aircraft to shoot the Hess plane down. That means four friendly aircraft were giving chase to the plane. And of course, you tell your anti-aircraft batteries not to shoot at a chase like that going on in the sky, especially the night sky. If your ground-based batteries start shooting, you're likely to kill your own pilots with friendly fire. So once the planes have been dispatched to shoot down the enemy target, you tell your ground-based guns to hold their fire. You either try to shoot down uh, the foreign targets with your ground-based batteries or with your fighter craft, but not both. So this argument that the British were expecting Hess is not a good one. We've looked at arguments for the idea that the British were expecting Hess. Now let's turn the situation around. Can you think of arguments against the idea they were? Uh, we've seen two good ones. Uh, first, as Nesbitt and Van Acker point out, if the British were expecting Hess, they would have assigned a fighter escort to protect him on his way over. But they didn't do that. In fact, they tried to shoot him down. Uh, both of these, the absence of an escort and the attempt to shoot the plane down, are strong factors indicating that Hess was not expected. So I think this part of the official story is correct. I can't rule it out that somebody in Britain had advanced knowledge of Hess's visit, but if so, this person or persons was so marginalized that it didn't affect the situation and they tried to shoot down the plane anyway. What about Hitler? Are there also arguments against him being advanced, having advanced knowledge of Hess's flight? According to Nesbitt and Van Acker, the real evidence that Hitler knew nothing of Hess's intention of flying to Scotland is available from several sources. First, Hess himself was adamant in his statements to the British that he had flown entirely on his own initiative. Secondly, he wrote to his adjutant, Karl Heinz Pinch, thanking him for remaining silent and stating that otherwise, he would not have been able to make his historic flight. Thirdly, the experienced and sagacious statesman Lord Simon became convinced that Hess was making his own interpretation 
of Hitler's peace requirements, partly since he became uncertain when pressed for further details. Fourthly, there is the evidence from Albert Speer, who witnessed Hitler's almost uncontrollable rage when he learned of Hess's flight. Fifthly, there is the evidence in Joseph Goebbels' diaries to the effect that Hitler said Hess deserved to be shot for his treasonable flight. Similarly, in his book The Hitler Conspiracies, Richard Evans writes, Hess himself never deviated from his initial admission that the flight had been entirely on his own initiative. His wife also always insisted that the flight was his own idea and nobody else's. It would surely have strengthened his position when he was being interrogated by the British if he had said Hitler had ordered the flight, but right at the outset he denied any such thing. Viscount Simon asked him during his interrogation on 9 June 1941, Would you tell me, do you come here with the Fuhrer's knowledge or without his knowledge? Hess replied, without his knowledge, adding, absolutely, and laughs. Also, I'd point out that if Hitler had authorized the mission, he wouldn't have sent just Hess alone in a fighter plane. Uh, Hess would have been a passenger in a larger plane, and that plane would have been attended by a German fighter escort to keep it safe until it landed on British soil. Further, we have accounts of what happened back in Germany when Hitler was told of Hess's flight. Uh, Hess left a letter for his Führer explaining what he was planning, and we have accounts from multiple witnesses about what happened when this letter was given to Hitler at his vacation residence, the Berghof, which uh, he was given while Hess's plane was still in the air. Albert Speer, Hitler's architect and one of his closest associates, was leafing through some sketches when Pinch approached him. At this moment, Hitler descended from his room upstairs. One of the adjutants was called into the salon. While I began leafing through my sketches once more, I suddenly heard an inarticulate, almost animal outcry. Then Hitler roared, Bormann at once! Where is Bormann? After a while, according to Speer, Hitler regained at least the appearance of composure. Who will believe me when I say that Hess did not fly there in my name, he asked. Hitler's interpreter, Paul Schmidt, indeed noted that Hitler was as appalled as though a bomb had struck the Berghof. I hope he falls into the sea, I heard him say in disgust. Hitler told Alfred Rosenberg that he felt physically sick when he read the letter. He was, he said, flabbergasted by its contents as he read them. According to Speer, Hitler never got over his deputy's disloyalty, even insisting later that one condition for peace with Britain, if it ever came, would be that Hess should be hanged. The leader, Joseph Goebbels, who arrived at the Berghof on 13 May, reported in his diary the next day, is completely shattered. What a spectacle for the world. He was, the propaganda minister added the following day, bitter beyond measure. He'd never expected it. So multiple Nazi sources confirming that Hitler was outraged and shocked by Hess's flight. Also, Richard Evans argues, Hitler, after all, had previously banned Hess from flying because he considered it too dangerous, and there is nothing to suggest he ever reconsidered this prohibition. General Karl Bodenschatz later recalled that Hitler had asked him, How was it possible, General, that the Luftwaffe permitted Hess to fly even though I had explicitly banned it? If Hitler had personally ordered the flight, he would at the very least have chosen an airfield closer to where he was at the time. 
Augsburg was relatively remote from the centers of Hitler's activity, which of course was one reason for its choice. Hess remained convinced to the end of his life that Hitler was a great man and National Socialism a great idea. But it is simply not credible to claim that he was deliberately lying when he said the initiative for his expedition had been his alone, and then continued to lie to the end of his days, when he had every reason to enhance Hitler's posthumous reputation by naming him as the author of his peace mission. And I think that's right. Uh, Hess could have portrayed Hitler as the great man he believed him to be if he had said the peace mission was Hitler's idea. But he never did that. And together with all the other evidence, I think the official story is correct when it says that Hitler also didn't know about the flight. I can't rule out that Hess may have floated the idea of a peace mission to Hitler, but apparently Hitler didn't approve if Hess made such a proposal to him. Then what was Hess's motive? Did he just want peace with Britain, or was more to it than that? Well, he obviously wanted peace with Britain. Uh, the obvious reason for that was that Hitler was preparing to attack Russia within a few weeks, and Hess believed that it would be disastrous for Germany to be fighting Russia in the East and Britain in the West. But there was more to it. I mean, after all, this was kind of a crazy stunt. Uh, Winston Churchill later referred to it as an act of lunatic benevolence, and Hess was engaged in some disordered thinking, so there may have been mental issues that were involved. An additional probable motive was getting back on Hitler's good side. Hess's star had been falling as other high Nazi leaders outmaneuvered him, but landing a major peace deal, that would free up Hitler to attack the Soviets and it could get him back in good with his boss. Yeah, and there's even more to it than that. Uh, you'll recall that Hess was very interested in occult matters all the way back uh, to his days in the Tula Society. Well, after the war, Albert Speer, uh, who had been on trial with Hess at Nuremberg and ended up in, Sp in Spandau prison, uh, said that Hess told him what inspired the trip. In his book, Inside the Third Reich, Speer explains, 25 years later, in 1966, in Spandau prison, Hess assured me in all seriousness that the idea had been inspired in him in a dream by supernatural forces. So Speer says that the idea for the trip came to Hess in a dream, which Hess believed had a supernatural origin. In other words, he believed he had a vision in the night uh, that told him to attempt the mission. And Hess wasn't the only one having dreams about this. His college mentor, Professor Karl Haushofer, uh, who had been a major general in World War I, also was dreaming about this. In his book, The Truth About Rudolf Hess, Lord James Douglas Hamilton writes, There is an interesting note that Hess was confirmed in his plan by the dream of General Karl Haushofer. In this dream, Karl Haushofer had seen Hess walking along tapestried corridors of British castles, seeking to bring peace to the two warring nations. Hess believed in the prophetic vision of Karl Haushofer and looked upon this incident as divine guidance and confirmation that he was to carry out his plan, or as he prefers to call it, his vision. Hess also got confirmation from another source. Nesbitt and Van Acker write, 
Another person of influence was Dr. Schulte Strathaus, who had cast horoscopes for him on numerous occasions. In the last instance, made at the end of April 1941, this astrologer had forecast that the signs were propitious for Hess in the following month. Hess had accepted this prognostication and acted accordingly. So Hess believed that paranormal forces had directed him to fly to Scotland and save Germany by arranging a peace deal with Britain. After his trip ended in failure, did Hess come to question his belief in the paranormal? On the contrary, uh, he did a lot of reading while he was in British captivity, and he came to a new conclusion, one that also involved the paranormal, or at least sounds like it did. Uh, he came to believe that there was a secret force apparently capable of controlling men's minds. In his book, Tales from Spandau, historian Norman Goda explains, Despite the complications that had arisen since 1939, Hess said, all would have gone well had Hitler, other Germans, the British, and even the Americans not been influenced by a secret force that could control men's words and actions. Hess deduced the existence of this secret force while reading everything he could during his captivity in Britain. This secret force caused the British leadership to fight Germany and caused Hitler to make poor political and strategic decisions that brought the destruction of the Third Reich. It was even responsible for SS atrocities in concentration camps and also for Hitler's order to murder the Jews. It is certain, he said, that there is a secret force through which people can be forced not only to speak, but also to act as they are commanded. But what was this secret force and who was behind it? And that's a good question. Um, in parapsychology, this kind of manipulation is sometimes known as remote influencing. But who would be capable of controlling the minds of so many people, including the leaders of multiple nations? Who would have an interest in harming the common good of so many people in the world? Who would want to cause so many deaths? Well. As a clue, just remember, this guy was a diehard Nazi, so who do you think he's going to say is behind all these evils? Goda explains that Hess concluded, The war, the atrocities, the destruction, the chaos, and even his own chronic stomach pains were all the work of the Jews, who controlled the secret force that Hess had supposedly discovered in Britain. German atrocities in concentration camps, camps Hess said were quite humane before the war, were engineered from behind the scenes by the Jews so that the bodies would be discovered by the victors, who would then publicize the atrocities, put Germans on trial, and execute them while ensuring that Germany would never rise from the ashes. So Jews were controlling world leaders and world affairs, telepathically, I guess, to such an extent that they brought about millions of deaths. So let's wait a second. <laughs> Hess said that the Jewish secret force was responsible for Hitler's order to murder the Jews and for SS atrocities in the concentration camps. Why would they do something like that? It was their own people being killed. Yeah, it does seem kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Uh, but Hess had an explanation for that. Goethe writes, Thanks to the mood of the Germans against the Jews, this action then transformed itself gradually into an extermination campaign against the Polish Jews and then against the Jews in general, quite contrary to the Jews' intent. After the Jews lost control, 
they endeavored at least to bring about a great propaganda campaign against Germany. Thus, it was the Jews who had the most to gain from the destruction of Germany and the advance of Bolshevism who had been behind it all, even to the point of benefiting from the slaughter of millions of their own. So, wow. Uh, according to Hess, they didn't intentionally bring about so much death uh, on their own community. But when you telepathically push a snowball down a hill, you never know where it's going to go. And they messed up the situation. And after that happened, they decided to turn it to their advantage to humiliate the Nazis with bad publicity using the horrors of the concentration camps. In any event, uh, in Hess's view, uh, maybe the paranormal forces directing Hess's peace mission were doing the right thing by telling him to fly to Scotland, or only apparently a cabal of telepathic Jewish people thwarted those paranormal forces by causing Hitler, Churchill, and the Americans to make bad decisions, and the rest was history. Sheesh. Sheesh is right. Did word of Hess's paranormal reasons for his mission get back to Hitler during the war? I don't have evidence for that, uh, but Hess was known to be very interested in occult matters, which Hitler had little use for, at least many occult matters. Uh, we talked about that in episode 31. And I know that others have suspected that there were mystical reasons behind Hess's flight. Uh, Lord James Douglas Hamilton states, On 1 July 1941, Goebbels recorded that Prof General Professor Karl Haushofer and Albrecht Haushofer had been drummed out of public life. He blamed both of them for the Hess affair and alleged that they had peddled mystic rubbish to Hess. And it's kind of ironic that Joseph Goebbels uh, took this attitude, because like other Nazi leaders, Goebbels himself was a fan of what they regarded as scientific occultism, as opposed to the mystical rubbish kind of occultism that Hess was into. In his book, Hitler's Monsters, the Supernatural History of the Third Reich, uh, historian Eric Kurlander writes, During the Second World War, the German Navy, Himmler's SS, and Goebbels' propaganda ministry all hired astrologers and pendulum dowsers to obtain military intelligence and conduct psychological warfare. But as a result of the allegation that Hess's flight was motivated by occult concerns, the Nazis ordered a crackdown on occult practitioners in Germany. The crackdown became known as Operation Hess. Eric Kurlander writes, Hitler was beside himself with rage, demanding to know what had gone wrong with his deputy Führer. Rosenberg and Bormann had a ready answer. Hess's penchant for political fortune-telling. Goebbels agreed, writing to his diary, that the whole obscure swindle is now finally rooted out. The miracle men, Hess's darlings, are going under lock and key. Sure enough, within days, Hitler approved the Third Reich's first coordinated attempt to expose and arrest all practitioners of the occult in Germany. Launched on 9 June 1941, Heidrich's Action Against Occult Doctrines and So-Called Occult Sciences, also referred to as the Hess Action, took into its ambit many occult doctrines, hundreds of individuals, and thousands of publications. However, Action Hess didn't really end up doing that much. Within weeks, most occultists were released. Within months, the regime had retreated from its stated policy of eradicating occultism. The perfunctory nature of the Hess action 
and its ambivalent consequences therefore reinforce our overall impression of an underlying connection between Nazism and the occult, a relationship that would in fact deepen after the Hess action. So the Nazi crackdown on occultism didn't stick. But it is more evidence that Hitler was not expecting Hess's flight and was angry about it afterwards if he decided to lock up all the kinds of people he thought had influenced Hess. So let's shift gears and talk about Hess's peace plan itself. What did it involve? Let's start with what may be considered the official British version of his message. According to a report prepared by the British Foreign Office, the solution which Hess put forward was as follows. One, that Germany should be given a free hand in Europe. Two, that England should have a free hand in the British Empire, except that the ex-German colonies should be returned to Germany. Three, that Russia should be included in Asia, but that Germany had certain demands to make of Russia, which would have to be satisfied either by negotiation or as the result of war. There was, however, no truth in the rumors that the Fuhrer contemplated in an early attack on Russia. Four, that the British should evacuate Iraq. Five, the peace agreement would have to contain a provision for the reciprocal indemnification of British and German nationals whose property had been expropriated as a result of war. Six, the proposal could only be considered on the understanding that it was negotiated by Germany with an English government other than the present British government. Mr. Churchill, who had planned the war since 1936, and his colleagues, who had lent themselves to his war policy, were not persons with whom the Fuhrer would negotiate. So basically, Britain and Germany would make peace. Uh, Britain stays out of the war in Europe and lets Germany do what it wants there. And Germany lets Britain essentially keep its naval empire, with a few exceptions like the former German colonies and Iraq. Oh, and Winston Churchill and his government have got to go because Hitler won't negotiate with them. In his essay defending his father, Hess's son Wolf gives a similar list, though it has some differences. The key differences are that Germany would not attack Russia to get living space, which Hitler was planning on doing. Um, Germany would drop its claim to its foreign colonies. Um, there was no mention of the British getting out of Iraq, and there was no mention of Winston Churchill needing to get out of office. There are other lesser difficulties, but basically both plans sought to establish peace uh, based on the status quo. Germany gets to do what it wants in Europe, and Britain gets to rule the waves. Uh, it would be fascinating to try to figure out precisely which terms has proposed, but since it's generally agreed that it was a status quo, let's stop fighting and leave, largely leave things where they are plan, we don't really need to discuss it further. Jimmy, what's your preliminary bottom line as we come to the end of this episode? My preliminary bottom line is that Rudolf Hess acted on his own initiative. Uh, it's quite surprising, but the evidence suggests that Hitler did not send him to Scotland and the British did not know he was coming. Uh, Hess was a weird guy, and he was convinced that supernatural powers were urging him to make the trip. I also conclude that the evidence points to him proposing a peace plan that essentially maintained the status quo, Germany would get what it wanted in Europe, and Britain would basically get to keep its naval empire. Uh, but we still need to discuss whether the man who flew to Scotland was Rudolf Hess at all. 
or whether he was replaced with an imposter. And whoever it was in housed in Spandau prison, did he commit suicide in 1987, or was he murdered? And if so, who did it and why? Thus, next time, we'll be doing both an identity theft investigation and a murder investigation. It should be fun. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to Richard J. Evans's book, The Hitler Conspiracies. Also, Lord James Douglas Hamilton's book, The Truth About Rudolf Hess. Nesbitt and Van Acker's book, The Flight of Rudolf Hess, Myths and Realities. Norman Goethe's book, Tales from Spandau, Nazi Criminals and the Cold War. Eric Kurlander's book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. Albert Speer's book, Inside the Third Reich. <clears throat> Wolf uh, Hess's essay, The Life and Death of My Father, Rudolf Hess, and also the British Foreign Office statement on Hess that we read from. All right. So that will do it from us this time. What are your theories about the strange case of Rudolf Hess and the conspiracy theories surrounding it? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this episode. Uh, they do video and animation work, so if you have a need for for that, uh, check them out. Um, you can uh, take a look at a sample of their work at my YouTube channel, uh, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, where we have the Mysterious World video version of the podcast. And while you're there please do uh, subscribe to the channel and hit the bell notification so that you get notified when I have new videos. I'm trying to grow my channel. We're working our way towards 40,000 and I'd really appreciate it. And thank you. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to cover? Next time we do an identity theft investigation and a murder investigation. Was it really Rudolf Hess or was he replaced by an imposter? And did he really commit suicide at the age of 93 or was he murdered? Folks, be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 249. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.
If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Middle-Earth. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Middle-Earth.